when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Kimgate, the leaked cables and ensuing diplomatic row that cost Britain's ambassador to the US his job, plus what it tells us about the impending Boris Johnson government and how he'll be treated by the civil service. Plus, we'll be digging into the BBC's latest expose on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and whether the so-called four M's around Jeremy Corbyn are losing their grip on power. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Whitehall editor James Blitz and chief political correspondent Jim Picard. We're also delighted to welcome special guest Bronwyn Maddox, director of the Institute for Government Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do like a good positive review. Until last weekend, Kim Darroch was the relatively unknown British ambassador to the United States. That all changed following the explosive release of confidential diplomatic cables that exposed our top ambassador's private views on Donald Trump's chaotic White House and, troublingly, some details of relations with Iran. A diplomatic row broke out, with Mr Trump lambasting both Sir Kim and Theresa May in very personal terms. Then, after growing pressure, Boris Johnson failed to defend him. His position became untenable and he resigned on Wednesday. So George Parker, let's go back to the publication of those cables last Sunday in the Mail on Sunday. The story was by Isabel Oakshot, a very prominent Brexiteer journalist who put this out there. And the story was very much painted as, here's our civil servant, lifelong career Mandarin putting forward his views on the Trump White House, which were not particularly friendly. And the row became more about the leaking of it than what they actually said. Yeah, I think that's true. I think initially there was a view in the Foreign Office that this might be containable as a story. They got wind of the fact that the Mail on Sunday was about to break the story on the Friday. Calls were put into the White House and the State Department, and obviously it was hugely embarrassing and problematic, but they thought they might be able to contain it. But a couple of things happened. The first one was that the way the Mail on Sunday treated the story was very much focused on the individual himself, Sir Kim Darroch. It was about our man. It wasn't just about the cables. It was about him personally. And in the eyes of Brexiteers, at least, the embodiment of the pro-EU establishment elite and all the rest of it. And the second thing, of course, was the way that Donald Trump subsequently reacted to it. Once the tweets were put out there criticising Sir Kim, building up to a crescendo where he called him a pompous fool and all the rest of it, then it became very difficult for him to stay on. But initially, there was a view in the diplomatic community in London and Washington, it could be contained. James Blitz, I said this was quite unprecedented because the cables went back two years. So whoever leaked this, and we're still none the wise about where this really came from, although there's a general consensus in Westminster that it wasn't a spy, there wasn't necessarily a foreign agent involved. 
there was different levels of classification. Some of it was what you might call political gossip about who's up and who's down in the White House. But there were some more classified things as well, which made the leak all the more troubling. Yes, I think unlike leaks of the past, this was actually a sustained operation by the person or persons who carried it out. On the one hand, you had what are called diplomatic telegrams written by Sir Kim, which have a very wide circulation across Whitehall, going up to around a thousand people possibly, go to most departments, just to inform people on what the British ambassador's view is on the US in terms of all the issues that affect Whitehall departments. But then there was a more specific group of what are called diplomatic letters or emailed letters, which would have gone to a much smaller circulation of people, maybe only five or ten, perhaps even smaller than that. And there are a couple in particular which had very small circulation indeed and where I suspect the focus of the inquiry will be. There have been leaks before and Sir Kim himself was leaked back in 2016. It's not unusual. But the scale and intensity of this and coming at this particular moment and the reaction from President Trump and the lack of proper response from Boris Johnson made this something on a completely different scale. Well, Bonman Maddox, when this row first broke out, everybody seemed to rally around Sir Kim's position saying, you know, the fault was on the leaker, not him. He was doing his job as a British diplomat, to be honest, as he saw things. And you heard eventually Jeremy Hunt came out to bat for him in very strong terms that was described as his love actually moment about that moment in the Richard Curtis film where the British Prime Minister speaks up against the US president. But then things started to turn as Brexit has said, well, in fact, this guy is just not delivering the best interests of the British state and he's not really close enough or understanding Trump world. Yes, though I think the the reactions in the beginning were slightly more mixed than you said. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, Foreign Secretary, in the beginning distanced himself a bit from the remarks and said, I don't share those views about the US. Then, as the heat began to rise, he did rush to embrace Kim Darrick and said, look, I stand behind him as Foreign Secretary. I think what is significant is first the leak. Yes, there have been leaks before, but we are in very politicised times. We've seen it in all kinds of ways, leaks from the cabinet and so on, where people feel legitimised by the strength of their convictions that their view on the outcome of Brexit is right and someone else's is completely wrong. They feel legitimised to break convention rules, even perhaps the Official Secrets Act. We have to see what the exact circumstances of this leak were in order to get what they want or in order to get their view out. So I think there is a tone around this that matters and it matters how that leak is pursued. And then the second thing is that Boris Johnson in particular did not stand behind Kim Darroch. And Boris Johnson is, as we know, the front runner to be the next prime minister. And that seems to me immensely damaging because the civil service has been taking a lot of heat over Brexit. It has really been required in what you might call a vacuum of political leadership to say this is the way we're going to keep producing solutions, knowing that even though civil servants think they're giving their best advice, one side or the other is bound to disagree very, very strongly. And when Theresa May was trying to bridge all sides, the civil service was called on to produce solutions that sometimes it may well have found close to implausible. And so they've been put in a very difficult position. And now you've got the probable next prime minister not backing up 
a very, very senior civil servant, but saying it is more important to the country that we get on with a notoriously thin-skinned president who doesn't like any criticism of him at all than that I stand up for the institutions of this government. And I think that is very damaging. George, what was the kind of moment that Sir Kim decided to step out of this? Because initially, as we said, Theresa May did rally pretty strongly behind him, although she didn't appear publicly until Wednesday at PMQs, by which time he'd already handed in his notice. But it did seem as if he wasn't going to go. And the sense that we'd got from speaking to people who knew his thinking was that he actually felt it would be a really bad president if he resigned. What was the crucial thing, do you think, that changed his decision to actually decide you know what, I'm just going to walk away from this thing. Well, you're right that on the Tuesday, we were all asking the question, is Sir Kim going to fall on his sword? And one of his friends said, I don't know whether Kim possesses a sword, but if he has, he won't fall on it because it was set a terrible precedent. And just 24 hours later, that's exactly what he did. So what changed? The interesting thing was that he was determined to stay. He was being encouraged by the Foreign Office to stay. The Cabinet met on Tuesday. They sent a unanimous message of support to him. The Prime Minister sent a note to Sir Kim telling him that he enjoyed her full support. I think he realised that things were getting very tricky once he'd been disinvited to that dinner at the White House that President Trump was attending for the Emir of Qatar. He was then blocked from attending a meeting at the White House with Liam Fox, the Trade Secretary, who was meeting Ivanka Trump, the President's daughter. And it was clear that there was another meeting with Wilbur Ross, which was also going to be cancelled. So he was starting to consider whether this was a sustainable position. And he was mulling up this during Tuesday, but I'm told the final factor, and it was a factor, but not probably the only factor, I think it's fair to say that, was Boris Johnson's performance in that televised debate on Tuesday night on ITV. So Kim didn't watch the debate, I'm told, but he was given a full account of how it had transpired. In fact, that Boris Johnson, as Bronwyn was saying, didn't give him his full support or indeed any support at all. And I think he decided that evening that he would quit. He um, telephoned Sir Simon MacDonald, the Permanent Secretary of the Foreign Office, early the next morning. I think about four o'clock in the morning, Washington time. I don't think he got very much sleep and then finally confirmed that decision to Theresa May later that morning. So in that TV debate, Jeremy Hunt came out in very strong terms saying he absolutely has my backing, he can stay as long as he wants and tried to push Boris Johnson into giving the same kind of Mm. reassurance. And Boris, in typical Boris style, used lots of fluffy language and said, I and I alone will make the key decisions. But he didn't say... I'm fully behind Sir Kim Darroch and said that we must have close relations with the US. And ever since then, Boris has been trying to spin it in a very different way, saying that, oh, no, no, I offered my personal support to Kim. I spoke to him privately. But, you know, you can't have these decisions made when you're not in power. But do you think Boris knew what he was doing there in that debate? If he did, it's a regrettable decision. I think if you only sat through the question about this at the House of Commons on Thursday, the sheer anger in the House of Commons on all sides and dismay that someone who is going to be probably the next Prime Minister had a choice between standing with a British diplomat under fire that we'd sent abroad to represent the country or siding with the American president. He went with the American president. I think Boris Johnson quickly realised that he'd probably misjudged the mood. His team admit that he could have been clearer, which is code for he screwed up. And since then, he's been trying to repair the damage. The only thing I would say is it's not going to make all that much difference to his prospects of becoming Prime Minister because a most Tories have already voted, and B, the question of the fate of a 
ambassador in a distant land is probably not high on their list of concerns. So James, attention has now obviously turned to who is going to be the next ambassador and is it going to be a career civil servant in the vein of Sir Kim Dowick or given everything we've seen when Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, will he want a political appointee instead, somebody who is not trained in the Foreign Service but speaks the language of Trump, speaks the language of Brexit, which seemed to be the message we were getting from Mr Johnson on that TV debate and of course there's already been names in circulation because they add to the complication of this whole story. So Kim was due to retire next year anyway. And we'd been told that he was either going to go in January, which is when his four-year term came up, or at the end of next year, which would have been after the next presidential election. What have you been hearing on that? I think it's very difficult to say because events have taken everybody a bit by surprise. I mean, the first question is, is there any chance of Theresa May actually making the appointment herself in the final 13 or 14 days? A bold move, you might say. It would be a bold move because in the end, you'd be appointing an ambassador to Washington who might or might not have the imprimatur of Boris Johnson. And I think that would be an extremely risky thing to do. I mean, somebody might be up for it, possibly, but that would be a difficult thing. I think... What Boris Johnson needs to do is reflect on the arguments generally that Bronwyn has been making, because the most important thing about this whole affair is not, as George has said, the impact on the leadership election. And it's not, in fact, in many ways on US-UK relations, which will go on. There's a very deep relationship. It is on this relationship between political masters and the civil service. And that has been terribly damaged. And there is a deep lack of morale inside the civil service. And I think the question now for Johnson really is, if you go down this road of making a political appointment to Washington, somebody who goes against the grain of what the civil service might want, you are going to do more damage. And there are other appointments as well, just to widen this out, which will really define whether he's going to work with the civil service or want something much more Brexity radical. Those two other appointments are Governor of the Bank of England, an absolutely key appointment coming up, which will define what kind of attitude he takes to the civil service and the institutions and the cabinet secretary. There has clearly been a lot of bad blood with Sir Mark Sedwell, the cabinet secretary and the head of the civil service. If he were to make a very preemptive move against Sedwell and move him out, he really would be breaking a lot of the institutional atmosphere we have in this country. And that's actually something we had heard before this row, that before the leaked cables, there was already some vague plans in place to move Sir Mark to replace Sir Kim at some point next year. Bonman, do you want to pick up on that and where this is going to leave the relationship between the Johnson government and the civil service? You know, he's going to become prime minister probably in two weeks' time. And at that point, it's probably going to be quite hostile for him that when he arrives, given how he acted in the TV debate, his comments regarding the whole Darek affair, and his views on Brexit, of course, because he's played a role like many other Brexiters in blaming people like Ollie Robbins, Mrs May's chief Brexit negotiator, for the failure to get a deal that could pass the House of Commons. I think it matters enormously. And this isn't just about the Boris Johnson government from Labour waiting in the wings. A lot of very direct comments, particularly from John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, about how he would like to break the Treasury up, re-educate many in the Treasury and a new kind of economics. The whole relationship between government and the civil service is, if you like, in play in a way that I think is potentially very damaging for the UK. Now, you could, to turn this around, make a case to say, look, a prime minister needs in some key positions someone who is on his or her side, who really gets what she's trying to do and speaks to that programme and is an advocate, if you like, not just a neutral public servant. I don't think 
the ambassador to Washington is one of those, even if you bought that argument, and by and large I don't. The ambassador to Washington is there to do what Kim Derrick was doing. And it's easy to forget in the UK that the president isn't everything. An awful lot of what trade deals are done is done on Capitol Hill with Congress. And some of the most effective US ambassadors I've seen have simply, when the UK working day has ended, slogged up to Capitol Hill and sat outside senators' offices waiting for the audience, knowing that that's how you get British influence as well. So I think we could and should have toughed it out. And I think Johnson needs to pivot, as we have seen Johnson do before in some circumstances, and repair relations with the civil service in order, as you're saying, to uphold these institutions, to make clear that he understands the principle. And yes, as you're saying, incidentally, to get his administration off on a smooth footing. And a question, I think, for you, Anne James, do you think there's any chance we're going to head towards politicised either diplomatic service or civil service, that there's been this argument around from some this week that in this brave new world we're about to enter, in fact, what we do need is people who take a much more politically ruthless approach to doing their business as opposed to the British tradition of having political civil servants who are permanent. They don't change with the government of the day. You can, as I said, possibly make an argument that in one or two posts, a prime minister needs, deserves such a person. And for example, one of the names that has been around for Kim Derrick's successor might be Liam Fox, now the trade secretary. So that would be a political flavoured appointment. I think it would be very damaging, though. And that really begins to change the whole flavour of the civil service, absolutely changes its morale, but changes even more. This relationship between the government and the civil service, is the civil service there to stand up and give impartial advice, particularly when the government doesn't want that? And I think it's important that they do. I agree with that. And I think what I would add is that, look, you could conceive of moving to a US-style spoil system in which the incoming government has its own people in the key civil service roles. But that's a colossal change. I mean, we have had the so-called Northcott Trevelyan system in the UK for about 170 years. It is, in many ways, the jewel and the crown of the British system of government. And to start to carry out this change, this is the key point, at a time of Brexit, when the civil service is already, and this is the point that isn't made in this discussion, under enormous pressure because of no deal, with civil servants having been ramped up for a no-deal Brexit on the 29th of March, then brought down again because we didn't have it, now by a Johnson government about to be moved back up to no deal on October the 31st, potentially, to then, on top of all that, start moving your own political people. It's too much. I think he has to recognise that things have to be done carefully. And I think there's a risk that he could actually do some quite serious damage if he tries to bring in too many political people. This isn't just about people. I mean, the big danger for UK foreign policy is that it becomes all about trade because we need trade deals after Brexit. And so all kinds of other concerns, which ambassadors are there to assess, including human rights record and so on of the foreign governments, all those get swept aside. And that would happen more quickly with political appointments. And very briefly, George, one final question. This is all about leaking. And there's been a culture of leaking in Westminster as long as anyone can remember. But it's clearly escalated in the past six months to a year with the NSC leak about Huawei, which was blamed on Gavin Williamson. The cabinet is leaking like sieve pretty much every week now. When Boris Johnson comes in, do you think he'll be able to reset that culture? I think it's unlikely. The culture of leaking, I think, comes from two principal things. One is... The government doesn't have a majority. There's very little authority. The Prime Minister doesn't really lead a government at the moment. It's listing 
and people feel emboldened to destabilise the Prime Minister and Cabinet government. And the other thing, as Bronwyn was mentioning, obviously Brexit, which cuts across everything and has broken so many conventions. Is Boris Johnson going to be able to fix that? I think unless he um, quickly repairs relations with the civil service, I think you could find quite a few people, although they wouldn't say this, of course, publicly or maybe even privately, there'll be a lot of people out to get Boris Johnson. The other major story in Westminster this week was Labour's latest travails with Brexit and anti-Semitism. A big BBC panorama expose revealed the extent to which those around Jeremy Corbyn appeared to have interfered with the party's disciplinary procedures regarding racism. Rumours have been around that at least one of the crucial four M's around the Labour leader might be about to leave their position. Plus, Labour took another slight step towards becoming the party of Remain. In all circumstances now, Jeremy Corbyn has said Labour will support a referendum unless there is a Labour government. So, Jim Picard, let's just begin with the Panorama programme this week. This has been long anticipated by Mr Corbyn's inner circle and they've been very agitated by it. There's been so much pre-briefing and warnings and some very expensive legal threats going out to these key Labour officials who spoke to the BBC. What was revealed in the programme that we didn't know before and what did you make of it? So I think one thing that Panorama really succeeded in is that they managed to get a hold of a vast number of former Labour officials. So they had about 20 people spoke to them. They had eight former Labour officials, of which seven had been in the party's complaints and disputes unit. And the fact that these people spoke to the BBC, in many cases breaking non-disclosure agreements, was in itself quite a coup for Panorama. And what they said, to some extent we've heard some of it before... So the fact that there was a huge increase in anti-Semitic incidents or claims of incidents since Jeremy Corbyn became leader, the fact that there was disagreement between the leader's office and headquarters in Victoria Street, and then there were some specific instances as well which they reported on which don't necessarily look good for some of the people close to Jeremy Corbyn. And there's been a lot of reporting on how the Labour Leader's Office has allegedly interfered with these cases before because there is a proper complaint and disciplinary procedure. What the panorama, to me, seemed to show, as well as the general awful atmosphere that has grown within the Labour Party, was consistently the people around Jeremy Corbyn did interfere on this. And they've always said that this was not the case. They were always following due process. And having watched that programme, I came away saying, well, they obviously didn't follow due process and they just really did whatever they wanted to do. Yeah, so one of the accusations was that in lots of cases where there should have been automatic suspensions or near automatic, there was advice from people around Corbyn's office that it should be downgraded to some kind of lesser slap on the wrist. And then you had specific instance, for example, uh, March 2018, Seamus Milne, who's the Director of Communications, wrote in an email that the disciplinary process for anti-Semitism complaints should be reviewed. He said something's going wrong and we're muddling up political disputes with racism. I think going forward we need to review where and how we're drawing the line. And that was seen as a sinister intervention by some of the people in Victoria Street. Labour has been very angry about this claim and they've shot back and they said, you know, Panorama cut out a line which specified that Seamus Milne was talking about where we're accusing Jewish people of anti-Semitism in more than just a few instances, then clearly something has gone wrong. But bear in mind this was a few weeks before the Jackie Walker case where there was what quite a few people saw as quite an open case of anti-Semitism. Jackie Walker is Jewish. The point I'm making is that there are Labour rebuttals for an awful lot of this and you get into quite tricky legal water quite quickly on some of this. So, for example, the Panorama claimed that the leader's office intervened. You know, the point that Labour makes is that certainly on some of these instances, Sam Matthews, who was the sort of head of discipline, had asked 
people in the leader's office for their advice. And so they're saying it's very unfair for that to be twisted in that way. But don't get me wrong, the overall impression accurately given by this programme is that a lot of people felt really uncomfortable and upset about the interference what they saw as being undermined by the leader's office, that much came across loud and clear, whatever Labour might say, and they're very complicated explanations for all this. Robert Shrimsey, what did you make of the programme that you've written before about Labour and the growing anti-Semitism within the party? And it was just astounding watching, as well as all of the things that Jim talked about, revealed about Mr Corbyn's office. It painted a very stark profile of how Labour has changed in the past yeah. three years for activists. And the Labour Party has had a very strong tradition within the Jewish community in the UK and very strong ties. And I think what came across above anything else was that those ties have been completely ripped apart. Yeah, I found it a very disturbing and distressing programme. I thought there were a couple of dimensions to it that really were rammed home to me. Jim's talked about the Labour staff. What the programme did also was intersperse those people with the experiences of ordinary rank-and-file Labour Party members who were Jewish. And some of the stories they've told about, you know, I would go to a meeting and I'd be called Jewish pig. And all of a sudden it seemed OK to turn on me and the atmosphere changed. And I have to say, I've got friends and I've had relatives who describe precisely those experiences to me at ordinary constituency party meetings. So what you're seeing is a massive influx of people who initially, because of their commitment to Palestine, have just turned on any Jew who isn't ready to completely disavow the state of Israel. And there has been an incredibly toxic air built up around these people and an influx of people who are very anti-capitalist, who see Israel as an agent of imperialism and who have a paranoid tendency in their approach. One of the guys who was interviewed talked about how at the end of an interview he conducted in Liverpool when he was doing a disputes case, the party member he interviewed said, where are you from? Now, this book had the most British accent you could imagine. Where are you from? Are you from Israel? And that's the tendency that's come with a number of the people who have flocked into the party to support Jeremy Corbyn because of his past foreign policy positions. So that was one thing I took from the programme. The other was in the response of the official Labour Party after the programme and in advance of the programme being screened. And this was very revealing because what it showed is that the leadership doesn't so much think it's got a problem with anti-Semitism as think it's got a PR problem with anti-Semitism. And it was all about winning the spin war against this. And all of the Labour outright, all the Corbynite outright, even all the media pals swamped onto Twitter to say how this programme was outrageous and it distorted. But the fact is, even if you accept some of the arguments that were made by the Labour leader's office about things that were not fair in the programme, and actually I think the Seamus Milne point that Jim raised is a red herring because what he's saying is we've got to protect our people in our Corbynite outriding group. But even if you accept some of those points, it is impossible to watch that programme and not think that there is a real problem and that the leader's office doesn't actually care very much about it. And the final thing I'll say, I think, about this is that I think the point about the way the current leadership of the Labour Party works is that it is completely committed to its cause and everything else is subordinate to that. So whether it's accusations of anti-Semitism, whether it's accusations of sexual harassment, the point is we have allies and we don't dob allies in it. That's the fundamental view. And I think another thing that really came across in this programme is that some of the former staff sort of left the Labour Party from stress. There's one who's talking about having a breakdown. And there was Sam Matthews, who was the head of disputes, who openly saying that he considered suicide because the situation was so grave. And there was a very unpleasant moment this morning, I think, on the BBC, where Aaron Bastani, who's probably the most unpleasant of the Corbyn outriders, who works for Navarra Media, he was out there suggesting that it was a very low, he used the word low to describe Sam Matthews saying that he felt suicidal about this. And these were the people who back in 2015 talked about a kinder, politics. You know, they genuinely believe that they were the good guys. And I do wonder whether they should be feeling that way today. 
So, Jim, this programme and the whole coverage of the anti-Semitism issue have raised questions about the so-called four M's, which I believe, according to Wikipedia at least, were first defined on this very podcast by yourself, which are the people who are directly around Jeremy Corbyn, who are propping up his leadership and in some ways, some say, running the Labour Party. And it's not just the anti-Semitism issue, it's Brexit too, because those four M's are very much against a second referendum. And they've been under huge pressure this week because Labour, as I said before, have taken a couple more steps towards being the Remain party. Yeah, so on the anti-Semitism issue, Seamus Milne, who's the head of communications, was dragged into the Panorama programme. Also, Jenny Formby, who's the General Secretary of Labour, who's a close ally of Corbyn, um, there were question marks about how it looked in some emails as if she tried to reconstitute some sort of disciplinary panel looking at the Jackie Walker case. She says in her defence that there's no evidence that she was trying to repopulate this committee in a more Jackie Walker friendly way. So there's a sort of element of ambiguity there. But yeah, advisors around Corbyn are criticised by a lot of MPs and by a lot of Labour people for various things that Jeremy Corbyn does, such as inverted commas, turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism or his Brexit stance. There are questions on all these things as to whether the advisers are just reflecting the king in some respects. We saw on Brexit possibly a major development this week. Regular listeners to this podcast should be aware that every time we think there have been two steps forward on Brexit policy, there's usually a step back at some point. But if you compare where Labour is now to where they were a year ago, a year ago they were sacking Owen Smith as the shadow Northern Ireland secretary for wanting a second referendum now we can see that they do want a second referendum on a Tory Brexit deal and they do want a second referendum in basically any circumstances. The bit they've still left wide open and the reason why I find it a little bit surprising that lots of Europhile Labour MPs are jumping up and down with excitement and claiming to have won is that we still don't know what Labour's policy would be if there's a snap general election. It's still open as to whether they would be remain or whether they would be leave. And if you look at Chulo, which is the general secretaries who had their own meeting on Monday and popped up with their own policy, the union leaders are still saying that if there's a general election, we should have a kind of soft Brexit policy. And then we decide whether we'd be remain or leave when it came to it. Robert used Jim's favourite metaphor of a prawn pushing a macaroon up a mountain for Labour's Brexit policy it has gone a bit more towards Remain because essentially if there isn't a general election, Labour's policies to back a referendum, back House of Commons motions and bills that would give a referendum now. But if we do have an election this autumn, which I think everyone on our podcast thinks is a very possible outcome, then Labour would still be going into that as a Brexit party. It's not going by saying we need to forget 2016, we need to overturn Brexit and need to start afresh. So it's not going to help them win back the votes they've been hemorrhaging to the Liberal Democrats. I'm not completely sure I agree with that last point. I think that if you take a step back from this, what has happened is that fundamentally Labour has reached a place where it is inconceivable that it would face an election before Brexit without supporting a referendum. What we're not clear about is where they would be in that referendum, because obviously if they were to win an election, they might attempt to negotiate a different Brexit position, but they would still put it to a referendum. So I think that's the real advance. I think it's inconceivable that in any circumstance Labour will not be offering a referendum on a Brexit deal if they get to power before Brexit has happened. Where you're right, obviously, is what we don't know is whether they would be campaigning to remain in the EU or campaigning for the deal that they had negotiated. So I think there is a distinction. But I do think that actually offering a referendum alone is enough to pull back some of the support they've lost to the Liberal Democrats. And equally, not committing to not having a Brexit of some kind or another helps them not lose too much more support to the Brexit party. So I think they're almost in the place where I think they were inevitably going to be. But the point that 
Eurofile Labour people have made to me this week is that there would be a, something called a Clause 5 meeting where all of the stakeholders in Labour would gather to discuss what the election policy would be if there's a general election. And they were saying the balance of opinion among MPs, grassroots constituencies, union leaders... If you add it all together, there is now an overwhelming weight in favour of a Remain position and therefore it's ludicrous to suggest that they would adopt a pro-Brexit position. The counter-argument is that if there's a snap general election, there might not be enough time for one of these meetings. If you look at 2017, the Clause 5 meeting didn't actually happen because there was so little time and that's how they rammed through Andrew Fisher's 2017 manifesto, which turned out to be really popular with a lot of people, but it was not put out to the usual discussion of the entire party and those are the circumstances where in theory Len McCluskey and the four M's the close advisors around Corbyn could still just about in theory come up with some kind of fudge. By the way I think when we're talking about the four M's it's worth making the point both on the anti-semitism issue and on the Brexit policy is the absolute hegemony of the Unite Union in the Labour Party. When we talk about the people around the leader's office, Len McCluskey is not actually in the office. He's the leader of Unite. You've got Jenny Formby, the general secretary, his former partner. You have Andrew Murray, who is chief of staff in Unite. And you have Carrie Murphy, a very close friend of Len McCluskey. So four of the five most important people around the leader, essentially his Praetorian Guard, are not just like-minded people, but they're the Unite Union. Exactly. And if you were to believe the polling of Unite members, there is a majority of Unite members in favour of stopping Brexit and remain. But when do general secretaries ever have to listen to their members? And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert, Jim, James and Bonman for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Salome Palazzi. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.